0: listening to Real Presence Radio, in the next hour we have Dr. Jan George with us from Sacred Heart Productions, teaching on the New Testament letters. Dr. George, a retired university teacher of literature, has a Master of Theology from the University of Dallas. She is with us today covering Philippians, which include the following three topics, Life and Death in Christ, Second, God Raises the Humbled One, and Third, The Lord is Our Boast and Joy. Tune in at this time each week when Dr. George will be walking us through the New Testament letters from Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study Program produced by Sacred Heart Productions. Accompanying lessons for each week can be found online at sacredheartproductions.org along with lessons and study guides for other New Testament books. Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study is designed to help people understand Scripture in light of sacred tradition. All lessons include related questions and relevant readings from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Knowing the Scriptures program is produced by Sacred Heart Productions, whose mission is to proclaim Christ and his love for his Bride, the Church. And now, here is Dr. George speaking about life and death in Christ.
1: Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Amen. St. Paul's letter to the Philippians is part of his captivity epistles written during his Roman imprisonment between 61 and 63 AD. Now the Philippians are a most beloved people of St. Paul. Paul founded the church in Philippi during his second missionary journey. And, as we know from St. Luke's Acts of the Apostles, he returned there at least once, perhaps several times, during his third missionary journey for a brief visit. Now, the Philippians are very endearing to Paul because, as we discover in this letter, and as St. Luke also recounted in Acts of the Apostles, they completely embraced in docility and obedience the gospel that was proclaimed to them. They were very docile to the teaching of Paul and receptive to God's representatives that he sent among them. And we hear this affection over and over again in this letter. Now, In their concern for Paul in his imprisonment, the Philippians have sent Epaphroditus, a disciple, a representative, a co-worker of Paul's, to Paul to assist him during his time of imprisonment. And what we discover in this letter is that he had become ill, quite ill, and in fact almost died and word would have gone back and forth between the church in Philippi and Paul in Rome and the people were very concerned and Paul is now sending Epaphroditus back to them. He is well, thanks be to God, and he is sending them back with this missive, this letter, the letter that we are here reading. Now, of course the Philippians were eager always to know how Paul was faring. And so the letter begins with his telling them about, yes, the suffering in his imprisonment, but the joy, the confidence that he feels even in this suffering. It's very beautiful, the joy he talks about in this letter. In fact, biblical scholars sometimes refer to this letter, this epistle, as the epistle of joy. St. Paul mentions the word joy, or a form of it, rejoice, be joyful, at least a dozen times in this letter, which is not actually that long. It is very much about joy, as we will discover when we speak of this again in our third question. So in the beginning of the letter then, he tells the Philippians that he wants them to realize that the circumstances of his present life, which is what he's speaking of in verse 12, are helping rather than hindering the gospel. Because if we were to look at the circumstances in which Paul is living, one might think that it would be very difficult for him to proclaim the gospel. But he says, no, this is not true at all. Not only are these difficult circumstances not hindering the proclamation of the gospel, they are in fact helping it. How so? First of all, because of the example he gives, because of his joy, his confidence, his strength, he is an encouragement to the other Christians in Rome. And he goes on to say that many have gained more confidence in the Lord Because of his chains, and he says they are getting more and more daring in announcing the message without any fear. So, this is certainly an important gain. He goes on to talk about how there are others in Rome who are proclaiming the gospel with false motives out of maliciousness and envy. Now, strictly speaking, they are not proclaiming the gospel in sincerity of heart, that they want others to be drawn to the gospel, they are angered by the proclamation of the Christians. It's not unlike what we sometimes experience in the modern world. When, for example, the world speaks of Christianity as though it is a burden upon society, that the lives of Christians are to be disregarded, that they are a problem, They're an obstacle to things happening that the world wants to happen. The world sometimes will try to convince others that the birth of Christ, Christian celebration of Christmas, the Savior of the world coming into the world and being born, that this is somehow offensive to people in the world. It's this way in which St. Paul is referring to those who out of their envy, their maliciousness, through false motives, are proclaiming their own kind of gospel. But he says it doesn't matter whether the motives are false or true motives. I am happy either way, he says. Why? Because it gives him an opportunity to proclaim the gospel in truth. It gives the church an opportunity to answer the accusations that the world is making to explain who Christ is, to explain that his birth is about the salvation of the world, for example. So this is what St. Paul says, although they mean to add weight to my chains, in other words those who have false motives, he says they cannot possibly do this. They cannot stop the gospel from being proclaimed. I am happy either way and I shall go on being happy, he says, because I know this is what will save me. It is about his own salvation, his own growth and holiness, and he does understand that it is about the proclamation of the gospel by the church. So he's not upset by any of this. He says, true, life to me, of course, is Christ. Yes, life to me is Christ. I want everything to be about life and truth and love. And he says, but then death would be a positive gain. Now he starts talking about whether it would be better to leave this world and to be with the Lord, which he admits that he wants to do, that that's actually a better thing, or whether he should stay in this imprisonment. He must proclaim the gospel being bound by chains, and eventually this proclamation will lead to his own death to his being beheaded. So he's discussing this in verses 21 through 24, and he says, life is, of course, Christ, but death would be a positive gain, he admits. On the other hand, if to be alive in the body gives me an opportunity for fruitful work, he says, I realize I am caught in this dilemma. I don't know which I should choose. On the one hand, I want to be gone and to be with Christ, And this is by far the stronger desire. And yet for your sake, he says, to stay alive in this body is a more urgent need. How are we to understand this? We need only look at the lives of the saints. The saints really always had, in a certain sense, a desire for death. Now, what does it mean to desire death? It's not a morbid kind of desire or desire that is contrary to Christ. It is a desire which comes about precisely through our life in Christ, through the Holy Spirit. What is physical death? Physical death is the completion of our dying in Christ, which we have been inserted into in our baptism. We now understand as Christians that the death that awaits us, our physical death, is simply a passing over from this life into the next life, into the completion of our incorporation into Christ. It is something very much to be desired. What is heaven? Heaven is the ultimate end and fulfillment of the deepest human longings. That is our ultimate goal. It is the full and perfect possession of the fruits of our redemption yes we possess them now but not yet fully and perfectly also he understands that by offering our suffering and death as an act of obedience and love for the father that we follow the example of christ and that by accepting that death in God's time, as God wills, and making it an offering of love and obedience, that death itself becomes a blessing. Let us not forget that because of Christ's death and resurrection, death, which used to be a curse, has now become a blessing. It is a gain for man, something that Christians understand. So, as St. Paul says in his letter to the Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. I have died, in other words. We have all died in our baptism. We have entered the death of Christ. And he says, the life I live now is not my own. It's not my own. Why? Because Christ is living in me. He is saying, I belong to Christ. Therefore, the life I live now is a life of faith in the Son of God. So what matters is God's will. So he is content to suffer and even to die a shameful death, which he eventually will, being beheaded a few years later, or to remain and to work for Christ in all of those trials and hardships. He's detached from what he must have in spite of the desire which is there, but that desire is a desire of the Holy Spirit. That is why he completes these verses by saying, This much I know for certain, that I shall stay and stand by you all to encourage your advance and your joy in the faith. He is saying, As long as I am here, I accept whatever God gives me, I will stand by you, I will by my words and by my example, do everything possible to hand over to you the joy that I know, that I have been given to know, that I understand in the Holy Spirit. This joy of which St. Paul speaks in this letter is all about the joy that Christ himself speaks of in his Last Supper discourse when he is talking to his apostles. He is saying his final words to them. And he is revealing the Paschal mystery that he is about to undergo. And yet, Christ speaks of joy, this joy that is his. And what does he say is his desire? His desire is that his, Christ's joy, may come to completion in his disciples. John Paul II spoke of this mysterious joy that Christ had even in the midst of the terrible suffering of his passion. It has to be true because God is about complete happiness, bliss, perfect joy. And Christ knew he was fulfilling the Father's will and that he was doing so so that we could live in that joy of the Father that gave him joy. He had perfect knowledge of that joy. And so St. Paul now, in speaking of this joy that he has in this letter, in spite of these terrible trials and hardships and persecution and imprisonment and imminent death, it certainly seemed imminent at the point at which he writes this letter, in spite of all of these things, he has this joy.
0: Thanks for listening to Real Presence Radio. If you are just tuning in, Dr. George of Sacred Heart Productions is going through the New Testament letters from Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study Program. For lessons, study guides, and more information, please visit sacredheartproductions.org. In this next segment, Dr. George will be covering God Raises the Humbled One. And now, back to Dr. George.
1: Now, he continues to call the Philippians to live this life that he is speaking of. And he says, I want you to put on the mind of Christ. He says, listen to what I have told you, what I have explained to you when I was with you, and now when I am far away, and do the same. There's this beautiful sort of a theme laced throughout this letter. Several times, St. Paul exhorts the Philippians, he says, whether I am there with you in your presence or whether I hear about you from a distance, whether you have me with you or you must carry on what I've told you to do while I'm at a distance, he says, it doesn't matter. Know that I am there in spirit. This is St. Paul speaking to the Philippians. But the Word of God is speaking to us. It is as if God himself is saying, whether I come, verse 27, whether I come to you and see you for myself, and God is coming, the day will come when he will show us himself, be in our presence, and we will answer for our lives. Or whether I only hear about you from a distance, I shall find that you are standing firm. This is what St. Paul wants. He is speaking on behalf of the Lord. Whether I seem far from you or whether I draw close, let me find you standing in the Lord. So that he is telling the Philippians, you must persevere as you see me persevering. You must fight the good fight as you see me fighting that fight. You must suffer as I suffer. You must proclaim the gospel as you see me proclaiming the gospel. He says, I appeal to you then, make my own joy complete by making your own the mind of Christ Jesus. Now, the mind of Christ Jesus, what does he go on to say about this? He presents a hymn. The hymn in Philippians chapter 2 is one of the great hymns, of course, of the New Testament. We must recall that in those first decades of Christianity, In fact, it holds true to this day. The people of God, in the newness of the Spirit, composed hymns that spoke of, that sang of, the unheard of event that God had fulfilled in the presence of man, in the person of the Son. So these hymns are about the incarnation, the death, That destroyed all death, the resurrection to new life, Christ's ascension, where he sits at the right hand of the Father. The hymns are about these kinds of things. Now, the Jews, of course, sang their hymns under the Old Testament, but the Jewish Christians, the converts, understood that they now had the material to sing new hymns to God. The pagans, the Gentiles, they had their hymns also. But those who were converts to Christianity had an entirely new sense of how to sing hymns about life and about the glory of man in the person of Christ. This hymn in chapter 2 of Philippians speaks profoundly about the humility of God, the mystery of God becoming man for our salvation. And so St. Paul says that Jesus, though he was in the form of God, Christ, who being in the form of God, meaning Christ is God. He was God from all eternity. That he, who was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped. God becomes man, he assumes the form of fallen humanity. And in doing so, he is going to upright, he's going to reverse the curse that comes about through Adam and Eve's grasping at God, grasping at God's knowledge, power, greatness. They grasped at what was not theirs for the taking. So God becomes man. God, who, being in the form of God, did not grasp at this. What did he do? He emptied himself, taking the form of a slave and becoming as human beings are. Now, this word emptied in the Greek is kenosis. The Greek word kenosis means emptying, to empty oneself. So what we find is that God, what a mystery it is, that he who is the eternal king empties himself of his riches and power, so to speak. He empties himself so that he can make man rich and set man free, give him the power to live as the being that God has created him to be. God becomes a slave to free man who is enslaved to sin and death. God allows himself to be taken for a criminal so that the ones who are true criminals, we are the transgressors of the law of God, so that we, the criminals, can be declared innocent. So the innocent one, the just one, becomes allows himself to be taken for a criminal, condemned as a criminal, so that he can transfer to us his righteousness, his innocence, his justice. So this is the kind of emptying of God that God himself reveals in becoming man. It is that kind of humility which is our key in being followers of Christ. And it's something that is often very difficult for us. When God sends his son, he sends him in the form of a slave. God makes him to be sin, as scripture says, who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Now, this humility is profound in light of the fact that he becomes man. But it doesn't end there. St. Paul goes on and says, Being in every way like a human being, he was humbler yet. In what way? Even to accepting death, death on a cross. God, the author of life, life itself, allowed himself to be put to death. He passed through death. This is a tremendous mystery that we will not grasp in this life and never fully grasp, even in the next life, that God would die. The Son of God would pass through death. He passes through death. And not only any kind of death, the most shameful, the lowest, of death known to mankind at that time, crucifixion, death on a cross, and for this, this is the reason, because he humbled himself completely and totally, for this reason, God raised him on high. Now, this is very important because, as God says from the Old Testament forward, that God raises up the humbled. God raises up the lowly from the dust, as the psalmist says. Now, man did not keep his proper place with God, so God became man and he lowered himself even lower than simply becoming man. He embraced death itself. Now, in that death, remember, Christ says, I have the power to lay my life down and to take it up again. It is because He is God. What a mystery that, from the state of death, the dead person raises himself up. For man, it's impossible. The concept is unimaginable to us. It speaks of the power of God. Now, it is true both that Jesus raised himself and also that the Father raised the Son up. But the Father and the Son are one. So it is for this reason then that God raised him on high and gave him the name which is above all other names. God has also been speaking about the revelation of name from the very beginning. It's a very important part Of the Old Testament scriptures, when God reveals his name to Moses, when he reveals his name to his own people. To reveal one's name is to give others accessibility to us in our person. It is a very intimate thing because once another knows our name, that person can simply call out and they have immediate access the name is for us the sacred icon of the person and with regard to god it's beyond really what we fully understand he is the i am i am who am but at one point later on in the book of exodus moses says to god i pray show me your glory he says to the lord and god replies I shall make my goodness pass before you and proclaim before you my name, the Lord. That's what he says, the Lord. Now, the name or the title Lord in Old Testament times was a noun that was used by the Jews. But early on, in ancient days, they used the name the Lord in substitute for Yahweh, because that name was so sacred, which is one of the reasons we don't really know how it's pronounced, because they, early on, stopped pronouncing the name, and instead, in referring to God, they would call Him the Lord, Adonai, even when they read Scripture. But even in the Gentile world, Lord was used to refer to kings to very great people, people with great power, great authority. One could even use the word Lord in referring to the head of a large household, to the head of any household. That person was Lord. But God was saying from the beginning, I am Lord in a way that is far above any others. And in the fulfillment of this, After the revelation of Christ and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, we learn that Jesus Christ is the Lord of lords. He is the King of kings. He is Lord and King in a way far surpassing any other. Now, we learn in Scripture that the power, honor, and glory due to God, God Himself, the Father, revealed that it is due also to the Son. How do we know this? Because the Father manifested the sovereignty of the Son by raising Him from the dead and exalting Him to His right hand. He has revealed that He is Lord. In this way, and this is the point that the hymn is making, it comes to this culminating end as the hymn talks about the name of the Savior God. He says, God reveals the name which is above all other names, so that all beings in heaven on earth and under the earth shall bend the knee at the name of Jesus. And then he finishes the hymn by saying in every tongue should acknowledge Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So, Jesus Christ is Lord. The name Jesus means God saves. Each one of those words has importance. And this name has importance power and God has given us revealed to us this name the holy spirit has handed over to us the power of god we have access to god simply and every time we proclaim the name jesus in reverence to proclaim the name of jesus is to pray it is a form of prayer provided of course we know to whom about whom we are speaking. In other words, we must speak the name of Jesus with reverence. What is beautiful about this is that as the church points out, the invocation of the name of Jesus is the simplest way of praying. By praying the name Jesus, we can actually, in a sense, fulfill God's own command and our desire to pray at all times. Why? Because everyone at any point in time can say the name Jesus. It is difficult enough for us to multitask, but for the intellect, it is virtually impossible. We cannot, for example, be poring over a bank statement at the same time we are planning next week's menu at the same time, we are designing a cabinet or some shelving we're going to build out in the garage. We can't do that in our intellect. But the Holy Spirit has given us the name of Jesus, and it doesn't matter what we are doing, we can pray that name at any time in any place. You can say the name of Jesus even as you are listening to what I am saying. I can say the name, Jesus, in my heart, even as I am speaking to you about the things of God. Now, we don't then continue on to tell God everything that is in our heart, but we don't need to. To say the name of Jesus is to call upon the Holy Spirit, who knows our hearts better than we ourselves do, The Spirit knows what we need and tells the Father so that if we are in a meeting where there is tension and there's a problem and we cannot find a solution and there's awkwardness, we simply say the name Jesus. That's all we need to do. The Spirit knows what we are asking for and needing in that moment. If we are exhausted, if we feel under a lot of stress, if we feel overwhelmed by the burden of life, and in the midst of that we simply say the name Jesus, the Spirit knows everything we are saying simply in the invocation of that name. And more than that, knows what we need more than we ourselves know or could ever express it, even if we took the time to do so. Even if we simply speak the name of Jesus by way of saying hello God, or I know you are here, or draw near to me, or I am yours, it can mean a thousand things. The Spirit knows that. If it's simply an act of reverence, the fact that we can say the name Jesus, that's praise, that's thanksgiving. The name of Jesus allows us to pray at all times. It's always there. It is not one occupation among many, the church says. It is the only occupation, that of loving God. It's very beautiful. So, the hymn ends then with reminding us that we have been handed over this mystery through the humility of God, God's service his giving his life for man.
0: Thanks for listening to Real Presence Radio. If you are just tuning in, Dr. George of Sacred Heart Productions is going through the New Testament letters from Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study Program. For lessons, study guides, and more information, please visit sacredheartproductions.org. In this final segment, Dr. George will be finishing the topic God Raises the Humbled One, and then she'll be moving into The Lord is Our Boast and Joy. And now, back to Dr. George.
1: Chapter 2 concludes with two different points which are both fairly closely connected. The first is that St. Paul calls the Philippians to be obedient. He reminds them, you were so obedient all the time that i was with you but do not allow your obedience to be limited only to times when i am present now that i am absent he says it must be more in evidence so work out your salvation in fear and trembling this is not the kind of it's not a human kind of fear it's a fear of the lord and an awareness that we have not arrived at our destination, that there is always work to be done. He will talk about this a chapter later. He goes on, though, to speak of Epaphroditus and the fact that he is sending him back to them. He is grateful for that. But he also says, I myself hope to come to you at some point in the future if he can be freed of these chains. But his More immediate hope is to send Timothy to them. So what he is saying is, I am sending Epaphroditus with this letter, with my instructions, with words of encouragement, because there would have been many other things that St. Paul would have told Epaphroditus. Be sure to tell the Philippians this. Tell them this that happened and what we did because of our love for the Lord. Edify them, build them up, teach them, console them, enlighten them. And he says, and I hope to send you Timothy. Now, Timothy knew the Philippians because he was with Paul when Paul founded the church. And so Timothy also has this great affection for the Philippians and vice versa. They had a great affection for Timothy. But St. Paul reminds them of this very necessary obedience to, obedience of mind and heart facility of mind and heart that is so essential for the people of God. We recall in his letter to the Hebrews, he speaks of this, and he says, obey your leaders. And these words would as well apply here. Obey your leaders and give way to them. This is because God sends us his messengers, his representatives, his priests, for example. He says, they watch over your souls, because they must give an account of them. Priests must give an accounting to Christ at the end of their lives for the parishioners, the people that they guided or led as shepherds. Bishops must give an accounting to Christ for all the souls of their diocese, not just Catholics. All the people in the diocese of a bishop are people of God and are destined for life in God. And the bishop knows this better than anyone. So he needs to teach and give an example accordingly. The Holy Father, the head of the church, he will answer to Christ for the souls of the world. This is a great weight upon them. So St. Paul goes on to say, Make it a joy for them to serve you. Be their joy as they, one hopes, would find joy in serving the people of God. Do not be a source of grief. You yourselves would be the losers. As much as docility of mind and heart can be difficult for us sometimes, we need only reflect on what St. Paul is saying in this hymn. We need only follow the example of Christ. If God would humble himself for our sake, Why would we find it difficult to humble ourselves for Christ's sake by humbling ourselves among our own brothers and sisters and particularly among the representatives that God has placed in our presence for our sake, for our own good? This is an issue that St. Paul addresses any number of times in his letters. It was very important because he himself, constantly came up against people who, though they called themselves Christian or though they called themselves Jews, who were zealous for the things of the Lord, in fact were not docile, were not open to hearing the word of God proclaimed to them. This is why the Lord says that anyone who humbles himself will be raised up. It is the Lord who raises up the humble. In the last section of the letter, St. Paul talks about, he begins by talking about the Judaizers. The Judaizers were Jewish converts to Christianity who went among the people of God in the various cities and who continued to teach or to insist upon the fact that the Jewish laws still had to be observed they still believe that circumcision was necessary for salvation. And as St. Paul makes very clear here and in other of the letters, that circumcision was a sign, good and noble, yes, but a sign that had been fulfilled in Christ. It was a sign pointing to baptism. And now that we are baptized, to go back and to cling to circumcision, in a sense, is to fail to recognize the transformation that has occurred in virtue of our baptism. So he says, I know that there are many who come among you who speak of their Jewish heritage, who talk of circumcision, of their obedience to the law and their religious fervor. But if they speak of that, he says, I could well speak of these same things. And he goes on to say, I too, was circumcised on the eighth day of my life. That would have been in fulfillment of the Jewish law on the eighth day. I was born of the race of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. I was born a Hebrew to Hebrew parents. And in the matter of the law, I was a Pharisee. He says, as for the uprightness embodied in the law, I was faultless. Now, he says this elsewhere, too. He had this zeal for the law that... The elders, among whom Paul, then Saul, lived, would have recognized he must have been viewed almost as a golden boy among the Israelites because of his knowledge of the law and his observance of the law. And he is reminding them of this right now for a certain reason. He says they claim to have this religious fervor that the reason they're doing this is because they love God, because they care about the things of God. He says, I know about this too. I used to have a religious fervor so great, I persecuted the church. He is being a bit ironical. His fervor for God was so great that he helped to put people to death. He is not saying that the Jewish heritage must be dismissed or disregarded as something of no accounting. He understands that divine revelation comes through Israel. It's profoundly beautiful. But he does go on to say, what were once my assets, I now count as losses. He says all of these things that I myself used to think were my greatest assets, I count now as losses in Christ Jesus. And I will go even further, he says, because of the supreme advantage of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, I count everything else as loss. He's going to go on to explain this, even worldly things, any kind of comforts, any kind of help, having his own health and well-being. All these things are beside the point, is what he is saying. For Christ, I have accepted the loss of all other things, if only if only I can be known in Christ. What he wants is full possession of Christ and for Christ to fully possess him. That is what matters. All of his assets are based upon that. He wants to gain Christ and be given a place in him. And he says, my uprightness then does not come from my Jewish heritage or from obedience to the law. He says, my uprightness comes from God through faith. He then goes on to make a couple of points in the last part of his letter. The first is this. He speaks of how he runs. He compares proclaiming the gospel, striving in holiness, striving to do God's will. He compares to running in a race. And the race is long. And if we have to run a very long race, it becomes easy for us to sort of drop back a bit and jog along. Our intention, yes, is to get to the end there, but the race is so long, we'll just sort of save our energy and we'll just keep going day by day and let things happen as they will. But notice the comparison he makes. I reach forward as if my goal is right in front of me. How do racers, even racers of a very long race, how do they come in to the final part before the finish line, those last yards They reach forward. So St. Paul says, I am straining forward to touch that line, to break through that line. Even though they're exhausted, they have given everything. They're completely spent. They find somewhere deep in themselves some bit of strength or energy to give it their all, even though they feel they don't have anything left to give, to give it their all because the finish line is right in front of them. Now he makes this point because he says, that is how you all must run. We must run not as if, oh, 20 years from now, the finish line, I'll sort of pump it up then and really get going. He says, you have to run as if that finish line is very near. And as a matter of fact, for any of us, it couldn't be very near. If we were to look at our lives yesterday, say that today was the last day of our life. And if we were to look back at yesterday How did we run yesterday? Is that a perfect last day before the finish line? Now, the Lord knows that we cannot exert that kind of energy all the time. But there has to be an attitude in our heart, a desire in our heart, that we need to go on giving more, that we need to recognize that the finish line is always closer than we really may think at any given moment. Because he goes on to say, this is the way in which all of you who are mature should be thinking. And if you are thinking in a different way, then I call you to re-examine the way you see it. At any rate, because he doesn't want anyone to be discouraged, because when we wake up someday and realize this, it's like, oh dear, what am I going to do? The Lord is saying, don't worry. St. Paul is saying, don't worry. He says, at any rate, simply go forward from the point where you are. It's a grace to realize we need to do a little more. We need to try a little more. He says, then begin today. Go forward from the point to which you have attained now. The other thing he says is, he speaks of his complete detachment. This is part of the Idea of considering all things as loss. He has forfeited everything. So, in the middle of chapter 4, he says, I have learned to manage with whatever I have. Sometimes he has a lot, sometimes he has nothing, he has very little. It doesn't matter, he says, whether I eat well or go hungry, whether I am provided for or I must do without. In other words, in either way, he embraces that in joy and happiness, not as if He is without or if something's wrong, he accepts all things as God's providence. The key is that he doesn't depend upon worldly forms of sustenance. He is detached from all the things that don't really matter in the end and he is attached totally to Christ. That is why Jesus Christ is his asset And so he says, I know how to live modestly. I know how to live luxuriously, too. I have mastered the secret of all conditions. And what is that secret? He tells us a verse later. He says, I can do all things in the one who strengthens me. This is the secret, then. This is the key. What he is saying is his boast, his strength, his joy is the Lord. That is why, regardless of what happens to him, he does have a boast. It's the Lord. It's the resurrection. It's eternal life. This is why he has joy in absolutely everything. This is a joy that the world does not know. It's a joy of the Spirit. Joy, we must recall, is rooted in love. That's closely associated with love. Why? Love causes a desire for the good that is absent. So let us say that the husband of a wife who loves him very much must go off for six months on military duty. And in her love for her husband, that love causes a desire for the absent good and the hope of possessing it again or possessing it fully or obtaining it. Now, this is true in the natural world, but it takes on a whole nother poignancy in the supernatural world because our love is God. And in a way, he is absent. Remember, Jesus says, as the bridegroom, he says that the attendants, his disciples, will not fast while he is with them. But the day is coming when the bridegroom will be gone and then they will fast. We fast, in a sense, in that love. It's the same kind of fasting St. Paul talked of earlier, that he wants to pass through death and to completely possess God. He wants that, and so this movement of love finds its completion in joy, in obtaining that good, the possession of the good. Now, Christians... Experience joy. Our bridegroom is not here, and yet he is here totally in the Eucharist and he is here in spirit. We know that. This is why we do have joy. We have an otherworldly kind of joy. Joy is one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. And what are the fruits of the Holy Spirit? Perfections that the Holy Spirit forms in us. They are the first fruits of eternal glory. We taste the goodness of the Lord. The fruits of the Holy Spirit, for example, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, chastity, and others, these are fruits of the Holy Spirit. They are perfections which the Spirit forms in us. They are the first fruits of the redemption. So we do have a joy on earth, a true joy, because we taste the joy of the beatific vision. That is a joy that no one can take from us. Nothing can change. How do we have that joy? Through faith. It is through faith in Jesus Christ because we know he is our joy, he is our victory, he is our strength. Faith. It is faith, as scripture says, that makes us taste in advance the light of the beatific vision. So when we feel this joy, the joy that St. Paul is talking about, this is why he says, How I wish you could know the joy that I have. To have that joy is already to begin to live eternal life. That's why he's detached even from the fact of whether he continues to live and suffer and die a terrible death on earth, whether he does that or he continues to labor through blood, sweat, and tears for God's people, it doesn't matter. It's all the same because he has these fruits of the Holy Spirit. This is what he is trying to convey in this letter, really more than anything else. This is why it is the epistle of joy. This is why he says, Towards the end, in chapter 4, always be joyful in the Lord then. I tell you again, he says, I repeat it, be joyful. I tell you again, rejoice. Let your good sense be obvious to everyone. It's the good sense of understanding who we are as people of God. The Lord is near. So beautiful. The Lord is near, he says. Never worry about anything, but tell God all your desires in every form of prayer and petition shot through with gratitude. It's that gratitude. Yes, we can thank God because we already recognize we have the gift. We've received it. And God is our strength. Shot through with gratitude, he says, and then the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will stand guard. Over your mind and heart in Christ Jesus our Lord." And this is why he goes on to say, So then, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, whatever is praiseworthy and good, he says, think about these things. In other words, make them The things that fill your mind and heart, and thus your life. The way you speak, the way you act, the example you give. He says, and then the God of peace will be with you. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to Knowing the Scripture's Bible Study on Real Presence Radio lessons, study guides, and additional materials can be found online at sacredheartproductions.org. Please tune in next time while we continue the New Testament letters. Dr. George will be covering Colossians chapter 1 and chapter 2, which include the following three topics: the firstborn of all creation, second, the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and third, Mary, mother of Christ. Mother of the Church. Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study is designed to help people understand Scripture in light of sacred tradition. All lessons include related questions and relevant readings from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Knowing the Scriptures program is produced by Sacred Heart Productions, whose mission is to proclaim Christ and His love for His Bride, the Church.